Hi guys, it's me, Ben Blacker, the creator and host of this show. Before we get started, I want to tell you about the next live show I have going on. It's Dead Pilot Society on Saturday, June 23rd at the Dynasty Typewriter Theater. Dead Pilot Society, as you know, is the live show and podcast series where we take pilots that have been bought and developed but never shot and give them the table reads they so richly deserve. There are no notes, no one gets fired, and everyone has a good time. On June 23rd, we have three really great scripts that are going to be a lot of fun to listen to. Uh, We have a script by Dan Harmon and Chris McKenna uh, of Community, of course. A script by Genji Cohen, creator of Orange is the New Black and Weeds. Also, she's the owner of the Dynasty Typewriter Theater. Uh, And a script by Patrick Schumacher and Justin Halpern, the guys behind Shit My Dad Says. uh, And they're running a new Harley Quinn animated series. Uh, All three of these scripts should be a lot of fun. We're going to get some great cast. We already have some people confirmed, which I will tell you about as we get closer to the date. For now, go to DynastyTypewriter.com and get tickets to the June 23rd Dead Pilot Society. They're only 15 bucks if you buy them in advance, and you're going to want to. Last time we had an amazing crowd. We were so happy so many people came out, and this time I can only anticipate more. So get your tickets in advance, DynastyTypewriter.com. Hope to see you there. Today we have another great recording from last year's ATX Television Festival in anticipation of this year's ATX Television Festival, which starts next month, June 7th through 10th in Austin. You guys should be there. It's going to be phenomenal. Personally, I'm moderating a Nash Bridges Writer's Room reunion, which I'm so excited about. Nash Bridges is the most ridiculous show that was ever on television. My dad loved it, which should tell you all you need to know. Um, But they had this insane writer's room with Carlton Cuse, Sean Ryan, Glenn Mazzara, Pam Vesey, John Wirth. Like, it's a murderer's row of contemporary showrunners. So I'm excited to moderate that panel, get a bunch of these writers back together and talk about what they learned from that show and how they sort of brought it with them over the years. They've got a lot of other great stuff at ATX this year, American Vandal. Uh, They're giving the... Television Excellence Award to Marcy Carsey. Uh, Castle Rock will be there, which I'm excited to watch. Uh, and a Felicity reunion. I, I'm leaving that long pause there because I love Felicity so much that a couple of years ago, ATX did this West Wing reunion and people went crazy. Felicity is my West Wing. Once again, you can go to atxfestival.com for all the details. Get your badges. It's June 7th to 10th, and I hope to see you there. Today, we've got a great panel. It's Powerful TV, featuring Jen Caton Robinson, the creator of Sweet Vicious, Gloria calderon Kellett, the creator of One Day at a Time, Justin Simeon, the creator of Dear White People, and David Hudgens, formerly of Friday Night Lights, Parenthood, a whole bunch of shows. This is a great conversation. And it's moderated by Maury McIntyre, the president of the Television Academy. Take it away, Mr. President. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker. And it's starting now. Oh, yeah. Uh, Most of you, if you know the Television Academy, know us because we uh, do the Emmy Awards every year. And we are just getting into Emmy season. Voting starts on Monday. So we're very excited about that. Um, But another thing that people don't necessarily know is that we are huge proponents of using television 
as a medium to impact positive social change, to really spark conversations. Um, we just had uh, one of what I think is actually one of our best awards, uh, the Television Academy Honors on Thursday night, which recognizes and, and gives uh, awards to shows that do just that. And today's panel is about that too. Um, we've got four fantastic writers, creators, executive producers who are really using the medium to, to spark these conversations. So without further ado, and hopefully they can hear me, uh, first we've got from Dear White People, the creator and executive producer, Justin Simeon. <laughs> Next, from Sweet Vicious, again, creator and executive producer, Jennifer Caton Robinson. From the new One Day at a Time, executive producer Gloria calderon Kellett, And from Friday Night Lights and Parenthood, executive producer David Hudgens. He comes with bags. Come with baggage. So thank you guys for being here with us. Uh, I wonder if you could all talk just a little bit about each of your shows, how they came about, and why it was really important for you to tell these stories now. Justin, you want to say? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, so for me, it, it really began uh, in college. You know, I'm black. Uh, hi. <laughs> and uh, I, sort of, <laughs> I sort of have always had the experience of sort of being a black face in a white place. I, I grew up in Houston uh, in a all-black neighborhood, was always in school in all-white schools, never quite feeling like I fit in either. And honestly, it, it really started with a conversation I was having with my friends uh, in college uh, about, you know, are we friends with these people just because they're the only black people here at the school? And why do you talk differently when you're hanging out with your friend Chuck? And, you know, we were just having these conversations that I felt like, gosh, this is my black experience, and I don't see it anywhere in the culture. And uh, at the time, like, 05, it was sort of like, you know, the, the height of, of the Tyler Perry moment, and I just felt like there was nothing out there that looked like me or felt like me, and uh, and I wanted to I wanted to put myself out there in the culture. So that's really where it started. That's great. Yeah, Jen. I mean, I feel like I had a similar situation, but with you know female stories and and seeing women uh, on screen and not really ever seeing myself and and not really ever seeing a woman who could be both strong and broken. And could feel all of those things at once, but not be and not be a side character, and not be and not be you know uh, someone else's part of someone else's journey. But like seeing that whole journey and what does that mean? Um, so that's really where I started at when I wrote Sweet Vicious, um, and from there it it really grew into a story and uh, about surviving and about women surviving and not just surviving sexual assault, but just having to wake up every day and be women and being like, all right, <laughs> we're going to do this again today. Because <laughs> uh, I think that a lot of stories, they, you know, they don't paint women as survivors. And I want to, and I really wanted to get that out there. Gloria? I mean, there's a theme already. I mean, I also did not see myself represented on television. I'm a Latina. I have to say it like that. It's like a thing with my peoples. Um... <laughs> But, you know, I sound like this and I, n nobody in my family is a maid. And, uh, you know, I just felt like my, I'm first generation too. My parents literally came here not speaking any English. And this is one generation later. And it, so when I would watch TV, I'd go, gosh, that's not, not that those stories aren't, aren't great too, but I feel like we've heard those. And there's certainly a wealth of other, uh, Latin American experiences that I wanted to delve into. So, uh, I was ready to tell that story. And then, you know, Norman Lear calls and you. 
you go. You go to that meeting. <laughs> David, um, did you find you were represented on television? Well, I got... <laughs> you took the joke right out of my mouth, sorry, my sorry, friend. Sorry, sorry. I'm, yes, I was concerned there weren't enough white middle-aged men being represented in television. No, look, I, I, uh, I ended up on Friday Night Lights... Um, somewhat reluctantly at first, I, I was, I had actually committed to do another show, and I'm from Texas, and I had actually known kids that were on that team in Permian in 88, and I, I was like, been there, done that, I'm not interested, and my agent kept saying, just watch the pilot, watch the pilot. So I did, and when Pete Berg made that choice to paralyze the, the quarterback at the end of the pilot, and the speech that Kyle Chandler gave, I said, wow, this is great, there's something here, uh, and I ended up on that show, and, and, you know, went from there to Parenthood, so that's how it happened. So I'm here representing the middle-aged white man. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, it's very brave. It's a service. It's a service. <laughs> um, can we talk a little bit about, not really about the show, but Netflix's 13 Reasons Why. Uh, I bring that up only because um, it's getting actually a lot of flack for uh, uh, people saying it glamorizes suicide, that suicide is... Um, contagious and, and this show, which is now very popular, especially popular among the teens, is irresponsible because it is, it is maybe popularizing this. H- how do you feel as writers? What is your responsibility to the stories you tell, but to your audience as well, to both convey authenticity in the stories you're telling, but also ensure that the message you're instilling uh, is either a positive one or, or one that is actually responsible? Um, I'll say this. It, uh, it's a, it's a tricky line to walk because, I mean, really since the Harlem Renaissance, black folks have been trying to tell their stories and there's always been this rift in our community about like, okay, do we want to sort of represent ourselves in a certain light to white people, to the mainstream culture? Do we really want to air our dirty laundry? Like how much of our stories do we want to tell it? Because our audience isn't just us. It's, it's everyone. And for me, the side I've always landed on is about telling the truth. I feel like if I can figure out how to tell a truth through this story that I'm telling, that is my greatest responsibility as an artist, no matter how it sort of makes us look. Because the truth is, is that we're often not really seen as as full fleshed out human beings. Like you were saying, you know, black folks are often the the side character or the novelty character. They're not the character that you really go home with and learn their their sort of like internal struggles. And I think that by me telling the truth in the show about the layers, the ugliness, the beautifulness about what goes on in the black experience, it paints us as human beings. You know, it shows that we can be multifaceted. And so, you know, I- I'm not going to get into the 13 reasons why, because, hey, Netflix, um, <laughs> come through with the season two. But, <laughs> but what I will say is that when I'm writing something, I'm like, oh, God, People are going to be mad at me for saying this, but this is what happens. You know, it, it frightens me, but it, that kind of makes me feel like I got to do it. Great. Anybody else on that? Uh, you our, think that sexual assault victims should be vigilantes? Is that? Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> um, no, I, our show, Sweet Vicious, was compared to 13 Reasons Why for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, in a lot of the articles that talked about what they did wrong, they praised us for doing things right. And I don't necessarily agree with right and wrong in these. I don't think that there is a definitive line there. Um, what I can say as a creator is I can only make the choices that I am comfortable with and that the writers are comfortable with and that we all feel is right for our story. And that is why we told Sweet Vicious the way we did. And that is why we chose to 
you know, make it about Jules's journey and, and make it really empowering and, and not to glamorize what was going on. Uh, I do think that 13 Reasons Why did a lot of things to just start a conversation for a lot of people around the entire world. Was the conversation the way that I would have started it? No. But that doesn't mean that it is the wrong, it, that any conversation to me feels good because at least we're talking about it. So for that, I, you know, I thank 13 Reasons Why. And, and I think that they, they did shed a lot of light on what was going on, um, in high schools and, and in colleges and, and what is going, and, and kind of the meanness that is happening with young people. Um, so, you know, did they do everything right in my opinion? Uh, no. Did they start a conversation? Yes. And I think that's incredible. I haven't seen it yet, so I hate to comment just without, really, without just speaking more it. to you, though. In I, do, terms I do of feel like what is we, your responsibility to tell deal, the yeah, we deal story with of mental Cuban health family. issues yeah. as well on our show in the in the pilot episode. Uh, this war veteran is talking about whether the the struggle in the Latino community about antidepressants and therapy is still a conversation. It's still something that is uh, an issue, and so we felt like it was a great opportunity to start a conversation about therapy, about uh, what, about mental health, really. And so to have our character grappling that and, and have struggling with uh, going on antidepressants, even though she is experiencing uh, post-traumatic stress from war and, and life, uh, was, was one that we took very seriously. And so we, we did consult with a lot of people. And again, the truth, it is the truth. It is, there are many things that, because this is a Norman Lear show especially, we feel like we have license to talk about some of these things and conversations that have not really been had from a Latin perspective, from a Hispanic, Latin American, um, Latino perspective. So we're, we're really grateful to be able to do those. And, and we try to do it. This is also one family, you know? So there's a lot of pressure, I think, on, on, on shows when you're kind of the only one still, when like, like 13 Reasons Why is a teen show. And there's some, there's other teen shows, but when you're the Latino show or the black show or the, like, it's all of a sudden you, your community is so excited because there's such a hunger for representation that they want everything to be represented. Yes. <laughs> and you can't possibly do that. You can't, you can't possibly talk about every teenage experience, every black experience, every Latin experience. So we're telling one story in the hopes that it starts a conversation so that there can be more stories. We actually just, as a side note, Speechless was one of the shows that we just gave for the Television Academy Honors. feels the same way, just in terms of disabilities. And I, I, my understanding is that your Asperger's storyline on parenthood kind of had that feeling, too. It was the thank you yeah, for finally yes, telling that. Yes, that, um, I mean, that was born out of uh, Jason Kadem's own experience. He has a son on the spectrum, and he, wasn't, he didn't originally include Max in the parenthood. Um, I remember when he was breaking the pilot, he was very uh, much on the fence on whether or not he wanted to even do that story. And um, NBC said to him, no, do it. Um, and he did it. I mean, look, everything they just said, authenticity, truth, and point of view, I think that's what, that's what, it, what it's all about. I mean, these people are perfect examples of it. So um, as long as, I think as long as you're telling the truth, then, um, then that's the battle. And by, I will say um, 13 reasons why I went through my kid's school like wildfire. Like in a weekend, they, were all, they had all watched it. So it very definitely started a conversation. In my house as well. Um, Gloria, the uh, original One Day at a Time kind of broke ground as a, you know, it's a single mom raising two girls in the city. You know, wh what was right about changing One Day at a Time now to tell this story of this Cuban family? Um, again, single mom, 
um, but kind of a multi-generational family in that regard. Well, Norman, when Norman asked to sit down with me, uh, he's just a really curious 94-year-old. Like, he's so disarming. Like, the first 10 minutes, you're like, oh, it's Norman Lear. Oh, my God. And then you really, uh, you kind of settle in because he's so curious. And so he just said, if this were you, like, I'm married. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. Sorry, fellas. Uh, <laughs> I'm married and I have two kids. Uh, and he said, if this were you, if, if you were divorced, if you got divorced tomorrow, what would that look like for you? And that's what started the conversation. I said, well, my parents, I mean, we are like straight up Latino, man. So my parents are in my house every day. They have a key to my house. They pick up my kids from school. Like, we're crazy. Like, nobody watches my kids but my parents. Because we're crazy because we don't trust anybody because we're crazy Cubans. Uh, and so that I was like, oh, well, if I had like my parents would live with me, uh, for sure. <laughs> There's no, absolutely. They, they will eventually. Like, thank God my husband loves them because it's like we're looking at houses now. It's like, well, the downstairs room for my eventual, for when they eventually live with us. I mean, it's so like culturally ingrained in me i'm the oldest daughter this is what it is so i said oh well my parents would live with me of course and he goes well talk talk to me about your parents he was less interested in my dad my dad's still alive and very bummed out he's dead on the show but uh, <laughs> uh but i was like well my mom is like she looks like rita moreno like on i remember when i saw west side story for the first time and i didn't i didn't really realize i wasn't represented until i saw that and i was like oh my god she looks like mom like it didn't even occur to me uh, that I was hungry for representation until I saw Rita Moreno. And she's like, my mom is this little, like, five-foot-tall, 95-pound boob popsicle who has the energy of, you know, like, you can't believe a bounding energy. And I told Norman, well, picture Rita Moreno. And he goes, oh, I'm friends with Rita. We should – we've been wanting to do something together. Uh, and I was like, of, of course you are. Um, and and that's that conversation is how is kind of how it all went down. I have a, a son and a daughter. My partner in this, Mike Royce, the wonderful Mike Royce. Uh, his kids are teenagers, so the kids really are more based on his kids and the coming out. For a spoiler alert, uh, the coming out storyline was based on his daughter, who was coming out at the time, and, and has given us license to to speak about that a little bit. Uh, and so it's kind of me and my mom and Mike's kids, and that's what we talked. To, that's that's really where it came from. Thank you. Uh, Justin, so uh, three breakout shows kind of debuted this season detailing the experiences of the young black adult, Dear White People, Atlanta on FX, and then Insecure on HBO. Uh, I wonder what kind of statement is it that that's still a thing? You know, how do you feel about it that, wow, we were talking about that instead of... I mean, listen. (laughs) (laughs) There's so many things about this experience that make your eyes roll, but... I got to say something. It is amazing to me that there are three shows on television about the young black experience, and none of them are the same. And again, you know, we're talking about humanity. Like, that's what that suggests, is that there is no one young black experience. I mean, I I grew up seeing myself in white people (laughs) on TV because I didn't have a choice except for the Cosby show. We were talking about that backstage. But, like, (laughs) we don't need to go there. It's fine. Um... (laughs) But, like, you know, I, I don't have a choice but to see myself in multitudes of white people. And so it's obvious that white people are human and have, you know, multiple layers and are multifaceted. But it's not so obvious with people of color or any other kind of marginalized community because it's always like, well, here's the one thing. Look at that one thing. And you're right. You, t- you know, you talk, this is the price of admission of being a person of color making TV is that, like, there's always that contingency of people like, well, what about that? What about the lesbian experience? What was that in your show? You know, and it's like, listen, I'm going to get to it, but, 
this is 10 episodes. That's all I have so far. Um, and, and, uh, but I, I think it is great that at least in television, people are taking a chance on new stories. I think novelty is, um, a thing that's actually working in our favor. And the truth is like white people and, and men and, you know, uh, straight white men and they're, <laughs> they get the experience that we've always had, which is they get to see themselves now in people that don't necessarily look like them or don't necessarily have the experiences that they have. And there, that's what is so powerful about storytelling. So to me, it's an honor to live in an era where there can be three shows and we don't, we're not in competition when we see each other is a hug and it's a congratulations because I don't know that it's always been like that. So yeah, I mean, it's annoying sometimes, but I'll take it. Okay. <laughs> like I'll take it. That's great. Yeah. Uh, Jen, so actually both Dear White People and Sweet Vicious take place on colleges. What is it kind of about the college experience that makes it so rife for these kinds of stories about these social issues? I think a college can be an ecosystem that kind of doubles for the country or the world or whatever. Like I think that it's a microcosm and you can make it feel as big as any, it, like everyone is there and you're kind of in one place and you can mirror what is going on in the news, in the world, in a way that is heightened and that is not actually talking about those issues. So you're able to, as one of our producers, Emily Levitan, says, hide the peas in the mashed potatoes a little more <laughs> and not actually tell a story about something specific that happened, but tell that story and talk about those experiences in a way that is through your voice and through the lens of your show. Um, and that was really valuable for us. We were able to tell kind of bigger stories uh, through this college lens and through this world so that we were, we were never, and it never feels like you're pandering to someone. It never feels like you're wagging your finger at someone, I think, because you're creating a world that people are buying into. Um, so that was really valuable to us. Is it also, I mean, you're actually telling a specific story, though, that's gotten a lot of press, fortunately, uh, in terms of sexual assaults that are going on on campus. I mean, I have a 16-year-old daughter who's about to go to college, and it's actually really important for her to hear some of these stories. So I just wonder if, you know, part of that, tied into when you were developing it. Oh, of course, of course. I mean, I originally wrote the the pilot was a spec pilot and they were older, 25, 26, mm -hmm. and it flashed into their origin story in college where they met and and what Jules was doing and why she was doing it and all of that. Um, and when MTV heard about the show and read the show and brought me in, they were like, we just want to do college. But it was when, we re when I redeveloped it into a half hour and then back into an hour, um, in college, the show really came alive. Because we were able to kind of dig into it. And when we started really doing the research on what was going on, because this was, I mean, I wrote this in 2014, so it was before kind of the boom of information. Um, there were still, I would read five to ten articles a day published about what was going on, but no one knew about them. No one was reading them. Mm -hmm. And then the Stanford letter, ha Stanford letter happened while we were shooting, while we started to shoot um, the show, and it just exploded. Everything exploded, and and... The pressure became, you know, even more kind of insurmountable and it became even more important to everyone, if that was possible, to tell this story right and to do justice to what was going on and to shed light on it in a way that didn't make survivors victims and didn't put the, I think that the impetus is on them to fix it and to make it better and to rally and to make change and that is not correct and we wanted to make it a community issue and an everyone issue, and that was really important to us. Right. Uh, David, uh, I don't want to rehash a panel you were on yesterday about the family drama, but you know, clearly 
you guys on Parenthood explored breast cancer and drugs and Asperger's and uh, teen pregnancy. I mean, what, what is it about the family drama that just gives you such material? I mean, why do people resonate with that? Well, I, th- I think it's what you just said because it's a family drama and um, and you have multi generational characters. You have the opportunity to do it, and you know. And, and by the way. Because the first show I did, Everwood, we did a lot of the same stories on Everwood that we ended up doing later on Parenthood. And by the way, those stories on Everwood had been done in All in the Family. They had been done for generations. So I think a lot of times you're telling uh, the same or similar stories, but they have the context and the point of view of the times and of the writers writing them. Um, and so I, and I think the other key, at least in my experience, is when you're staffing a show, when you're putting together your writing staff, it's of crucial importance to have diversity of every kind, of color, of gender, of age, uh, of point of view, because I think that only helps the conversation and makes what you're writing a little bit more authentic. Uh, That makes me so happy to hear! (laughs) (laughs) Any thoughts on This Is Us in terms of its breakout? Is it that diversity? What what is This Is Us? Yeah. I, I, I did say this yesterday. I think it's fantastic. I think it's genius. I wish I had thought of that idea. I think Dan is really, um, really smart. I was at the Humanitas Awards when he won for the show, and yep. he gave the most hilarious speech ever. But the twist in that show, I mean, come on. And the fact that NBC was able to keep it a secret for so long before it aired, I mean, there's a family drama with a twist that worked. And I guarantee you, around town, there were a lot of writers sitting in there going, hmm, how can I come up with a twist that makes... Um, a genre or, you know, a, a hit like that. I think it's fantastic. Right. Uh, uh, this is really to anyone. What types of uh, conversations have you seen sparked on social media about the topics you're addressing? And what really are the pros and cons of having social media in, in when you're telling these stories? What social media? <laughs> <laughs> One of them is things you say on these panels apparently uh, go out into the world. I learned that lesson. Immediately. I mean, okay. So if you know anything about our show, you know that we were sort of like a target for a massive sort of alt-right craziness, white genocide or something campaign, which sucks because I wanted to keep my, you know, calls for white genocide a secret until the show aired. Um... So they beat me to it, you know, because you, you really need the element of surprise when you're when you're doing that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> but it actually, in our case, uh, you know, for me, it was really great because as an artist, that sort of knee-jerk reaction to dear white people is part of the experience that I want people to have. Like, I want you to sort of encounter that title and go, what is this? And then see the show and go, oh, that's what he meant, or that's what this is about. It's a thing that, frankly, um, white people get to do all the time. <laughs> and But because we are sort of in this knee-jerk culture, um, it, it is harder to do that from a sort of black point of view, uh, which is why I was so excited to do it, frankly. Um, and it has sparked so many conversations because, you know, folks who sort of wonder, do we really need a show like this? Is racism still a thing? Immediately found out that, yes, we do, and yes, it is. <laughs> Um, and it also sort of like brought to light a lot of these sort of cultures um, that were kind of bubbling under the surface and, and didn't really, you know, folks didn't really have a chance to encounter it. Uh, and of course, you know, like all of the shows here, like we, we get into all kind of stuff. And what's so cool is that particularly with a Netflix show where it kind of all goes out at once. 
Um, I get to see people sort of co- like gravitating to all sorts of things about the show. You know, some people are really into the issue of colorism and, um, you know, how a character like Coco survives at a place like uh, Winchester. Some people are really, really interested in the gay experience and what's happening with Lionel. Some folks are really interested, you know, our episode five, uh, which is sort of, you know, deals with gun violence like that. That was a big topic of conversation. So many people um, I've talked to that saw the show and, and, and truly felt like they had, they had, they have an insight in the issue that they didn't have before. And, you know, there's really nothing better as a storyteller to see that happen. Even the so-called negative stuff, all of it is, is a part of what we're talking about here. So, you know, the, the bad thing about social media is like your ego and like your feelings and stuff. <laughs> you don't need those. Yeah. <laughs> You're writing for television. Yeah. You know, like I, I swear I haven't been called like the N word so many times since I've like had a Twitter account with this show. Um, but, but it also really is a place where not everyone's having a conversation. A lot of people are just sort of screaming at each other. But it, it does give evidence that a conversation is being had in the real world. And that's that's been very gratifying as a storyteller. Anyone else? <laughs> uh I was very nervous before we put the show out there because of the, you know, I didn't want the survivor community to feel that we were taking their stories and exploiting them or using them for personal gain in any way. But we created a community of people that felt seen and heard and could talk about their experiences on social media with other people that loved the show. And I found that, like, there were women and men who literally met each other through people because they searched the hashtag found each other and then started group texts where they could talk about their experiences and they could feel heard and they could feel believed and they felt safe and i like i just like weep looking at it's crazy people were you know able to use social media to talk about how they were able to share the show with their father who didn't understand what they went through and they didn't have to talk about it but they could show him the show and be like it's this, but I can't talk about it yet, but it's this. Um, and through social media, they were able to put that out there when they were comfortable, men and women, and show, and, and their strength made others strong. So it was able to kind of foster this amazing community. And really quickly, speaking to dear black people, dear white, god damn it. If there was a dear black people... There'd be riots in the street. <laughs> Sorry, right. go I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. I'm That's gonna go. the party um, coming soon. Dear white people, oh god. <laughs> no, it's okay. Oh, god. It's okay. It's okay. It's black. She, it's she obviously was at the party in the show. So. Yeah, I was gonna. Oh god. No, um, I was gonna. Okay. <laughs> I was, I'm sweating so bad right now. <laughs> I was gonna. I was gonna say that. I I love the show. I binged it incredibly quickly. I one night I watched the whole thing, and then I went on social media because I was like. I can't imagine what you're going through and what this experience is like. And I really wanted to look into it. And what was so crazy to me is like, I, I wanted to reach out and be like, watch the Gabe episode because you didn't have to do that episode. You didn't have to go into that experience because we have enough of our experiences on television. And you did. And you went for it. And I, I was, I was so blown away by that episode and the choice to make that episode because it, you know, I, you really, it was about a world and it was about seeing the world through everyone's eyes. And I, I, I just was, I like wanted to answer all these people and just be like, watch the fucking show and watch this episode. Like, like you dumb assholes. 
Um, well, you can say that. Uh, I can't. <laughs> yeah, I know. Just like I so can. I'll do it yeah, for your yeah, trolls. Great. You do it for mine. Great, great, great. <laughs> great. We got you. We got you guys too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, we can all. We can work on this together. Um, but no. But even just you know you when I watched the show because I mean episode five I I told him in the green room I I haven't been moved like that watching television in a very long time I was uncontrollably crying I have never seen anything like that in my life i'm very fortunate i am a white woman i i don't experience that and being able to have stories like this and like atlanta and like insecure that i can see and experience and and be able to understand that is everything to me because i want that and i do think that there are white people that want that but there are people at the top who don't think we do and we do and so you know as a as a person who is not a person of color, like I, I like to be vocal about the fact that I do want this and I think it's very important. Not that I am the person that's going to prop you up or save you or any of that. I just think that it is a community and to, and to be loud for everyone is, is so important. So I just, I wanted to say that. Thank I think you. your show is amazing. <laughs> dear, dear white people. That's so sweet. <laughs> it is good. You guys should say it. Uh, yeah, we, we had, so we have one of our characters come out, uh, the 15 year old daughter comes out in, in the show. And the amount of, we had one girl in particular who did a video on Twitter and sent it to us of the moment after she watched the show with her grandmother and her aunt and the moment after she came out to them and then videotaped her saying like, I love you no matter what. And like, we've sobbing, we're all sobbing. Uh, that that the amount of um the amount of young gay latino kids that have been able to come out and start a conversation because we something really interesting happened when we were talking about it we have two gay writers in the room and one of the gay writers Becky Mann her father came out shortly after she came out and she said what was very interesting is that she had a really weird time with him coming out and she was like, I, she's like, it wasn't the gay thing. It was like, I thought I knew this person and now I felt like I didn't know them anymore. And so that really inspired the episode we did after the coming out episode, which is unbeknownst to the daughter, the mother, who is a liberal Latina woman who was in the military and has gay friends is like kind of weirded out that she's not totally okay. Like something's sitting weird with her about her kid coming out. And we follow the journey of that as well. And there's so many parents. That if, and ultimately, like, it's, it's not, it's, it, we realize, she realizes it's not about her daughter being gay. It's about, she had this whole story of what that relationship was going to be that has shifted. You know, it's not like we're going to plan your wedding and look at dresses and it's a diff, it's shift. And so she was just struggling with the shift. She still loves her kid. She still wants her kid to be happy. She still wants, you know, all of that. So to be able to have those types of conversations, uh, in the Latino context, in the Catholic, you know, it's a very Catholic Christian community, the Latino community, uh, and to be able to also have that conversation with the generations, uh, the amount of social media love we got for that, as well as from veterans. There's talk about another disenfranchised community on television. You know, a lot of veterans have mentioned that they are either heroes or they're like PTSD and can't function and are homeless. And that the vast majority of veterans, especially now with, with the amount of veterans that we have go off to war and come back are really functioning members of society, are teachers and doctors and, and police officers and, and are living perfectly normal lives here. And so to be able to represent that, there were so many people that were really moved by our, our veteran representation that reached out on social media. So the amount of immediate, uh, 
gratitude is really overwhelming. You know, I don't know that 10 years ago that existed at all. And so that that's incredible. And it, I just want to add to that, it, like we're like you're saving lives because the thing is, is that like when it's like, especially our families, like you know, I'm a gay man and born in the South, and coming out is just not a possibility for a lot of folks. I've lost a lot of friends to suicide and other kinds of things. And when you put that out, especially in a family show that everybody, you know, all members of the family are watching, it really does save lives because it shows, it puts something out there in the culture that says, look, this can happen and it can go well, you know? And it's, it's so funny. Just like you said, when you, you're like, Oh God, I didn't know I needed that representation. So I saw it. It's kind of like how I felt when I saw Moonlight, you know, it's sort of like, I didn't know that I could be all of these things. And so, you know, you got all of us here. We're in that business, and it, it is gratifying. And I just want to say, you know, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so nice. Thank you too. So, uh, Justin, you brought it up, so I'm going to go there. The Cosby Show. There is a uh, there's a line that Joe says, I think, in in is it maybe in the first episode. You know, I can't stop watching The Cosby Show. <laughs> what is the how do you guys balance being timeless versus topical in your stro- in your stories? And, and what's taboo? What, what what should you not go into? I don't really believe in taboo. I, my thing is like, you know, why are we doing it? You know, like, are we? What is the point of doing it? And and particularly with the Cosby Show, it's sort of like, you know, this is a. It, it's never going to go away. Like, we're always going to know what the Cosby Show is or was, and we're always going to know what happened with Bill Cosby. And I, what I wanted to do with that line is sort of get into the the trickiness, <laughs> uh, you know, of you know, we kind of talked about this actually uh, a bit, but like when you only have like one or two shows. And it turns out that the architect behind that show is up to some stuff that makes you feel some type of way. But because it's all I had, like, I don't know how to feel about that. And I kind of wanted to, uh, put that in the mouth of Joel is that like, it is, it's very tricky when your heroes are so limited and, um, you know, you gotta, it's not, it's not just about taking what you can, but like, it, it was a very powerful moment. And part of why it was so pow- powerful is because it was the only one of its kind. So what do you do? You know, how do you feel about that? That's, I kind of wanted to get into that. And, and like I said before, if it's taboo, but it has a point that we really need to make, and I'm afraid of what's going to happen, it's sort of my cue to do it. Parenthood, would it go through like the election that we just went through you know how do you feel politics about is very tricky yeah. politics is very tricky i mean it, it and and maybe it raises a larger point about what we're doing i mean we're making television and we're telling stories but at the end of the day the goal is to entertain um and so you don't want to lecture your audience i love the analogy about peas and mashed potatoes because that's exactly we called it the sandwich in our room it's a show about a, it's a story about a sandwich but it's really not about the sandwich so you want to you don't want people to feel like it's homework um, but you can have something relevant to say. So it is constantly a struggle when you pick a story and you're going to do it. I just think you have to attack it in a way that hopefully is either entertain, you know, it's going to make people either look, either they're going to be mad or they're going to relate to it, but at least it's got to provoke some kind of reaction. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, it is tricky when you want to take it on. Um, I mean, you know, it's, it, I mean, West Wing was my favorite show ever. And there's a show where, you know, okay. You're gonna you're gonna take on politics because that's what the show is about. But can you imagine doing that in this climate right now? It's just it's fraught. It's very fraught. 
By the way, um, has anybody seen Dave Chappelle's uh, stand-up specials yeah. where he talks about the yes. third time I met Bill Cosby? Yes. I mean, it is remarkable. And that is, I think, in that one, I think there's three, right, or whatever, in that one where he talks about it, it just points up how incendiary the whole topic is, you know? So I'll just leave it there. <laughs> Gloria? The other thing, well, the other thing, to, I think, to talk about when you're trying to take on issues, I don't think there's anything taboo either. There's things that because we're doing a family show and a show that we hope people will watch with their kids, we try to be sensitive in how we do it. We try not to swear. We try not to, you know, we, we're sensitive in the telling of the story. But we did a porn episode last year about the kids watching porn, you know, because that's a thing that kids have access to now and I felt like it was a great opportunity to have a conversation about like what that is and how a mom has to deal with talking to your kids about that uh but for for us it's how do we do it and not be preachy how do we do it in a way that is because there's it's hard it's hard to like try to educate and try to bring across a point of view and also not just tell one point of view we have characters on our show that are you know the the mother my the the character based on my mother, the Rita Moreno character, is traditional and is Catholic and is, you know, uh, open-minded, but but is that she is steeped in that world. And then the middle, you know, the Penelope character, it's loosely based on me, and then the daughter character. You know, so there's, we have three, you know, conservative and liberal and then somewhere in between. So we have a natural talking point. But it's oftentimes when people come up and say that was, oh, it didn't feel preachy. It's like, I'm like, oh, thank God, <laughs> because that's the intention. But you don't always, every time we're, we're fighting that line, like how do we have the conversation? How do we start a conversation without being too, gearing too liberal? Because we want, we want the conversation. We don't want to turn people off. Are there stories that you felt you had to tell? Like, did you have to go to the gun violence? Do you have to go possibly to a deportation uh, storyline. You have to go at some point to a slut shaming or a, a false accusation when you're telling these stories. Yeah, I, I came into it before we even got into the writer's room. I was like, episode five. I need a tone shift. I need a true midpoint to this series. And I need a moment when all the ha ha ha, this is so fun. They're having sex. They're so cute. Look at these <laughs> cheekbones. You know, <laughs> meets the reality of what it is to be black in this country. I knew that before we wrote a single script. And uh, it was a fight. It was a bit of a fight. It was like, well, do we really want to? Can we do the tone shift? It was like, it would be irresponsible to do this show and not deal with this topic. You know, so, yeah, there are certain things that I do feel a responsibility to talk about. Not because it's sort of, it's not about representation or like painting us in a certain light, but it just, if I'm going to tell the truth, how can I not talk about the elephant in the room? Absolutely. I mean, we the deportation one was really interesting because that was Norman's idea. He said, how about like Lydia's like they're worried she's going to get deported. And I was like, Cubans can't get deported, Norman. But people don't know that. People don't know that in this country, uh, for some reason, there are certain people that are favored and certain people that are not. And there's different rules for different people. My family was fortunate. They came here in 1962, not knowing the language and were welcome. Here, welcome to the United States. We're going to foster you. And they were put in foster care and they were allowed to work. And they were, and as a result of that, my journey has been easier because I have Latina privilege of being Cuban, right? My parents didn't have to struggle for jobs and not work within because they had social security numbers and they could pay taxes and they could buy a home. So that was, you know, there's people that it, that's within the Latino community, something that is, 
hot button issues because there's this concept of, well, the Cubans, look, look at the Cubans. They've done such a great job. It's like, yeah, we have done a great job. We were also given help. We were. So that's a controversial issue. And so to talk about it and to talk about it in the context of this friend who her parents were getting deported and Lydia has this thought of like, well, I did everything right. And it's like, well, who's, who's deciding who does everything right? The rules are different for different people. Let's talk about that. Cause a lot of people don't know that. And also in the United States, I think Latinos are still seen as sort of one thing. And, uh, which is why the colorism episode of your show meant so much to me because I'm a passing. I pass, you know, you look at me and you don't know, is she Italian? Is she Armenian? What is she? That's been all my life. And so when I started as an actor 12 years ago, I couldn't, I've never, uh, until Jane the Virgin this year, because I'm an actor as well. I, this is the first year I've, I've been cast as a Latina. Every other time I'm too white. She's too white. She doesn't look Latina because there's a perception of what Hollywood felt Latina looked like and it didn't look like me. And that blew my brain hole open. <laughs> and then the parts I was going out for 12 years ago were gangbanger's girlfriend and gangbanger's sister. So I'd have to go spray tan and then I'd have to be like, Chewy, put the gun down, all right? <laughs> for real. I wish I was joking. That is a direct line from something I auditioned for. <laughs> And I was like, there's got to be, like, there's not, like, a young teacher or, like, uh, really? That's all of it? Okay. All right. Yeah. I, I guess how you, you would not cast me. No, it should go to someone else. Uh, so, you know, that I'm talking in circles now. But, but yeah, the, it's we have to talk about certain things. We have to talk about those things because that's crazy to me. And, uh, and even, like, somebody was just talking about race and how it relates to what's happening in this country you can't not talk about it. We can't not talk about those things. Something that was really important to us was not only telling Jules' story, but telling Nate's. And Nate is the bet is. So for those who haven't seen the show, um, Jules is raped by her best friend's boyfriend. Um, and it is her journey as a survivor. And we wanted to also talk about what it means to be that man that did that. And how do you get there? And what is that privilege that you feel that you can take what you want mm -hmm. as a white man, football player, that what is the athletics department telling you that you're allowed to take if you want it? What is your dad telling you that, you're, you know, because it's not, you know, I, I don't think that kids are born rapists. So where is it coming from? And it's starting young and it's not starting in college. They're getting to college and they're like that. And, and people feel and, and are doing the things that they think is right. And, uh, in episode, our episode five, um, uh, we, yeah, mid, love those midpoints. Um, uh, we built to a place where she is confronted by Nate in the kitchen of her own house. So she feels unsafe in her own home. And he says that they cheated together. And she is, <laughs> and she is paralyzed and she doesn't say anything. And, she, and this is a girl that we've seen for four, for five episodes, kick ass, kicking ass, stabbing rapists in the leg <laughs> and leaving out the window in a vigilante outfit. And she's paralyzed in front of this person. Um, and she realizes he doesn't even know what he did. And what is that conversation? And how can we also start that conversation? And that was extremely important to us to also, and also to portray men who are not rapists on the show and make sure that the representation of you know, men on the show was not just villain because that's also a conversation that I think that a lot of people, you know, 
you know, you with feminism and with with this issue and even with the you know the show and the marketing, we were really nervous that men are going to be like, oh, it's the it's the man bashing like man hater show. They just hate men. It's like, no. <laughs> um, and so that was really important to us to to build out our male characters and have you know really supportive men in these women's lives, and um, but also to kind of talk about the breeding ground for where these boys are coming from and how they're being made and, and, and what is going into, you know, their brain throughout their life that is getting them to this point where these things are happening. Jen, you mentioned that uh, you, you kind of started pitching this idea in 2014. I wonder, you know, what kind of response are you getting from studios and network execs and some of your actors as you go through some of these stories? You know, clearly you did get your shows on air, but how long did it take to get there? Are you actually getting... You know, a lot of, yes, these are the kinds of shows you want to do or, you know, hey, great, I'm glad I got the Dear White People, check that box, I can go on to something else type thing. Uh, well, my show was canceled. <laughs> um, uh, but that says a lot. I Yes, I got 10 episodes of that show on TV and then when, you know, after they truly did not market our show and aired us on election day... <laughs> cool day um uh aired us through thanksgiving and you know they our launch was not great but there was no blame on they they didn't feel like taking any blame it was all on us that we couldn't find an audience so yes like did did mtv buy this show and put it on the air yes but it's so much more than that in television and it's and it's about support and you know i I look at one day at a time and dear white people and I, uh, um, and those, and it's, it's so much about the support of a network and, and that networks, you know, kind of like really, really standing behind something and believing in it because it's, there's so many hurdles that you have to jump through in making a television show and getting it out there. Um, what I can say is that in making it, we, our notes were, you know, never pull it back, never you can't do that, never any of that. We had a very amazing creative partner in a woman at MTV who is now at Facebook, um, uh, doing content there. And we, so we, it was never those fights. It was more the fights of like, (laughs) no one's going to see this if you don't get it out there. It's like Selena Gomez tweeted about 13 reasons why and 13 reasons why blew up. Would that show have blown up had she not done that and had it not been put out there to 120 million people on Instagram? Who knows? Yeah, I mean, it's a tough game. It's a tough game for anybody. It's especially a tough game if you're trying to tell a story that, uh, you know, doesn't have a lot of comps or, you know, frankly, the people who are in charge don't really personally have an attachment to. I mean, I'll say that Dear White People, this is not like an overnight thing. I've literally been working on this since 2005. And, um, you know, it started with... So why, did, why did you actually go from film to television? What was there? Well, it was sort of, you know, first of all, it, it began out of a lot of things. One of them was my love for multi-protagonist movies, which are not uh, as common. Uh, but I, I just love them because they have a way of talking about a subject and admitting that there is no sort of one point of view in a subject. So, like, in trying to figure out how to do that um, with Dear White People, it went through just so many iterations, so many characters, so many storylines that didn't make it into the final product that by the time we came out in Sundance, there was just so much stuff in the vault that I still felt was needed and and that I wanted to talk about and then to top it off sort of touring with the film to colleges 
I mean, it, it just, I, I, I had so much more to say. And it was just one of those things where, like, you know, all of that effort um, and all of that work and all of that, like, rumination over the years, uh, when Lionsgate sort of brought me in for a general to say, hey, you know, we own this property. Have you ever thought about doing it as a TV show? I was able to say yes, and here's what I do, because I had been thinking about it for so long, and I had been told no for so long, and I had been asked to cut things out for so long that I had all this other stuff, and I was ready for that moment. But I can't say that um, I knew that that moment would ever come. You know, people say that luck is is, is an opportunity opportunity meets preparation and it just so happened in this case I'd been preparing for that moment this entire time um but even when we got there uh yeah it's tricky because not everyone gets what you're doing until they can see it uh and even with the movie out there um you know it, it was a we it was a first season we had to we had to prove ourselves and the battle is still not over by the way yeah no I know you want to make more well, for us, we Come only on season two. <laughs> we only went to streaming services to pitch the show because for me, I felt people have been wanting me to write my family for a long time. I was very worried. There's a whole other conversation in um, just trying to break into Hollywood and being female and being a person of color. And I was I, I just spoke about this uh, on a roundtable. Uh, my first job, after my first job, I was offered a huge bump to go to George Lopez show. This is very beginning of my career, 10 years ago. And, or How I Met Your Mother. And there were reasons I wanted to go to How I Met Your Mother just because I was 30 and newly married and I felt like I had a lot more to say about dating in that time in my life than a family show. I didn't have kids. But I also was very concerned that the Calderon in my name, they would see that and I would be loopholed as a Latina writer forever. And I wanted to show that I could do this other thing because it was a very different time only 10 years ago. And so now I felt like comfortable to be able to tell my family story because it's so personal. Uh, and with Norman and the streaming idea, it was like, well, at least we'll be able to make 13. And if we get canceled, at least we get to make 13 of what we want to do. And it's not the situation where you, where you're ordered for 13, where you order a pilot and who knows? And then you've sort of blown it with the pilot. Or you make six, but they or, they air them out of order, and you get canceled. And truly, with with this show, I don't know that we would have survived on a network because we really find our way around three, four, five. You know, this is a multi-camera show. It's sort of old school. I think people hear like multi-cam, one day at a time. What's that going to Latino? You know, laughing, and I don't like any of those things. <laughs> You know, and so we, I think that we really needed the time to get people into it and let them know we're, we're doing a sitcom and it's going to feel familiar, but we're also going to talk about these things the way he did 30 years ago. And we have more time to do it, 28 minutes versus 20, which you get in network. Uh, so the, the process of, of doing it streaming was always what was really interesting about this. And I think ultimately the reason we were able to make the show we wanted to make and, why we got picked up. It took us a long time, too. Don't worry. <laughs> David, you actually It'll mentioned really NBC good. wanted to do the Asperger story. So, you know, it sounds like the network is actually even coming and pushing sometimes on, on your stuff. As to yeah, what I, I, um, after Parenthood, I did a show that was 10 episodes, one season and canceled um, for NBC called Game of Silence based on a Turkish format that was essentially the story of four friends um, who get sent to prison and um, get abused there, sexually abused, and how it affects their life. Um, which sounds like the real feel-good drama hit of the year, doesn't it? 
Um, and Jen Salky, to her credit at NBC, I had a very similar experience. There was never anything we couldn't do. There was never anywhere we couldn't go. She said, tell the story. Um, tell it the way you want to tell it. She did nix one pitch that involved an armadillo. Um, but everything, <laughs> uh, weird stuff with an armadillo. But, but we had support. Um, from them the whole way, and we couldn't find an audience either. But I, you know, I, I think, I think a lot, of, and it, you know, it's interesting too the difference between network and cable, and the, and the freedom and the license you have. And I've I've done both, and it is very different. It's a lot more sophisticated than just you can say shit or fuck and, or so show nudity. It's the whole approach and the ethos of the show. So I think it's important in the story that you're going to tell or that you want to tell that you do pick the right place to go. Um, and hopefully you get the support from your partners and hopefully you, it does, it does resonate. I mean, that social media thing, I don't know if anybody has seen The Keepers on Netflix. I love true crime shows. And so we watched The Keepers and it's about, it's about sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. And I went online, like you do, and you finish an episode and there are people talking about it. This happened to me, you know, Joe from somewhere. This happened to me too. And it very much started a conversation. And so, I mean, thank goodness there are places. Like Netflix and stream, you know that that'll make those kind of shows. I did want to open it up to a few questions. If there are any in the audience, anybody have a question? Yes. Well, that's interesting. It So this started before me. Norman wanted to do it. Norman met with Mike Royce, who who was on Everybody Loves Raymond. They were like, oh, we're two white guys. We should get somebody in here that knows what they're doing, uh, what they're talking about. Uh, so it was already sort of on its way by the time I met with Norman. And to be perfectly honest, and I've said this before, so this isn't breaking news, but uh, when I met with Norman and I heard he was going to do it, I really had no intention of doing it. People have been wanting, like I said, people have been wanting me to write my family for a long time. I wanted to do it in a place I felt very, very comfortable. And during the course of our conversation, I felt very, very comfortable. So as far as did that get it made? Yeah, probably. Like had I walked in saying I want to do this show and I want it to be 28 minutes. And it's going to be funny, but we're going to talk about really heavy things like PTSD and, you know, the father threatening to commit suicide and a daughter's going to come out. I think they would have been like, mm, pass. I don't know that it would have gotten made. I don't know if it would have. I think that the Norman of it all, also, I don't know that it would have uh, in this very noisy television environment. There's so much content that to be able to get any buzz, to be able to get anyone, like we were reviewed by a lot of people. I know so many showrunners whose shows don't even get reviewed because there's too much. They've made great content and they can't get reviewed so people can't read about it to even know it exists. So uh, I think all of that was essential in getting the show made and in getting eyeballs on the show. And there's still, you know, there's still so many places that I've gone to. You know, my, I have a lot of family in Miami because I'm Cuban. There was nothing in Miami. Nobody in Miami knew that the show was being made and it's a Cuban show on Netflix because they just didn't know until 
you know, an article came out or until somebody did a story on it. So I think those things were essential, unfortunately. In this climate, anything that you have to make it noisy um, can get more eyeballs on it. Uh, really quickly, uh, Emily and Caitlin have asked us to do one very quick thing, correct? Am I still oh, doing yeah, this? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This, this, uh, this could be fun. Can everyone just stand up very quickly? So um, I've been coming here since the beginning, and I'm actually on the board. And what I love about this festival is you guys. Um, it's always fun to interact with people. And last night I met a couple of people who are from really far away, and Emily and Caitlin and I were talking. So we wanted to see if we could identify the person in this particular panel who came from the farthest distance, and we have a little goodie bag for our winner. So what we're going to do is first say everybody who is from Austin can sit back down. Everybody who is from Texas can sit down. Oh, my God. All right, I don't know how to do this now. <laughs> um, shit. Uh, everybody who's not from a state that borders Texas, sit down. Good Lord. Is there anybody that's here from outside of the country? Oh, my God. All Americans, sit down. <laughs> wow. How many do we have left? One, two, three. Okay, where are you from? Toronto? How about over here? Yeah. Okay. Wow. I think Brazil is the winner. Come forward. Oh, wait, wait, wait. There's one more. There's one more. I'm sorry. Ah, I'm so sorry. I knew it. New Zealand. Here. I'm Matt. I'm from New Zealand. My second time here. Outstanding. Way to go, Matt. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Appreciate it. So thank you guys for being here. Thank you so much to the panel thank for being you. here to talk about these things. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to the Writers Panel. Once again, my name is Ben Blacker. You can follow me on Twitter at Ben Blacker and tell me who you want to see on these panels. I'm always looking for new guests. I always want to know what television you are enjoying. Like the Writers Panel on Facebook at facebook.com slash TV Writers Panel. Visit me on Tumblr at writerspanel.tumblr.com. Please do remember to rate and review the Writers Panel on iTunes. It is really helpful to keeping us visible, something that's very important in these uh, transition-y times, but even after these transition-y times. Also, as I said, it makes me feel good about myself. And what writer doesn't need that? Thanks again to Forever Dog and to the ATX Television Festival and this new ATX Television Festival podcasting network endeavor. Be sure to go to atxfestival.com. Check out this year's fest. There's so much great stuff coming up. I hope to see you there. And I look forward to you hearing me again next week on the Writers Panel. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.